When I was a young believer in uh, Houston, Texas, and started attending a different church, I would drive to this church on early Sunday morning, and in Houston, there were two rare things. One, there was no traffic early Sunday morning, and secondly, in this fairly well-to-do neighborhood where this church was nestled, a lot of people were out doing yard work. And in that day and time, it was pretty common to see people on these like kneeling contraptions where they had these little carts or little pads, and they would kneel, and they'd work in their azalea flower bed or trimming or weeding, whatever. And the irony was not lost on me. It struck me that here I was going to a church, and people were kneeling in their yard. And it was always interesting because their yards were beautiful. They were immaculate. And, and I, for one, I love a beautiful, immaculate yard. In fact, Cindy and I write a check for someone to make our yard look beautiful <laughs> and immaculate. But these people spent their time, their interest, their sweat equity, their money on their knees to make their yard look beautiful. I would argue and suggest that what grabs our affection, what grabs our heart, will also get our time our resources, our money, our interests, the things that we love, what we're drawn to, we're happy to spend time with them. If we like them, we want to do them. If it's important, we're ready to write a check, and that's natural. Let me ask if beneath that, a little deeper, is that man was designed to worship. If I was to bring boxes of puppies in this room right now through all the doors, there would be a corporate ooh and ah. And people would want to hug those puppies and pet those. My wife would be one of the first. Cindy would grab a puppy. She loves puppies. And she would let them lick her face. She just adores puppies. Your heart follows a puppy. And, and I just say the word puppies, think teenagers. Because they grow up into dogs. <laughs> and our affections change. Now, if I brought cats in, we have a whole different discussion. But your affection goes after something. You have a hobby, a home you love, relationships you appreciate, children, grandchildren. Is it a fair statement? And I'm asking this not rhetorically. I'm asking you to think about it. That where our affections are, where our heart goes, where we're ready to write a check, to spend time, energy, emotion, that implicit in that is man's desire to worship something. Not the, these horizontal things aren't bad necessarily. But it reveals to me a longing that man has to connect with something where his affections and attentions grab him. We have been studying the seven churches in Asia in the book of Revelation. And today we complete that study with chapter 4 of Revelation. If you have a Bible or an electronic version, I actually want you to go to Revelation 1 to begin with, and then we'll look at Revelation chapter 4 today. The book of Revelation was to both encourage and warn the audience. It was to encourage the believer that Christ was going to return. The second coming was going to happen, and a lot of things were going to take place on schedules we can't always be precisely definitive about. But it was also to encourage the believer, but to also warn the audience. We have studied these seven churches in some detail, and let's get a frame of reference for what we want to look at today as we tie this together with the resurrection of Christ on an Easter Sunday. In chapter 1, verse 19, 1, verse 19, we go back to reframe, recalibrate why we started this study. Therefore, write the things which you have seen, and the things which are, and the things which will take place after these things. 
write what you have seen, the things that are, and the things that will take place. Got it? Now turn over to Revelation 4 and listen to a similar but different language. Revelation 4, verse 1. After these things I looked, and behold, a door standing open in heaven. And the first voice which I had heard, like the sound of a trumpet speaking with me, said, Come up here, and I will show you what must take place after these things. What you've seen, what will take place, now what must take place. And the story or the narrative changes dramatically. We've been talking about seven churches. We won't see the word church again until chapter 22 of the book of Revelation. So the Lord has given John a revelation about these churches. And we've looked at the messages, some that still apply today, all that apply today, some uniquely applicable to our lives. Now we're turning the page, literally metaphorically, to look into heaven to a future vision of what this throne is like what is going to take place, what must take place. As a sidebar, a theological truth is that God's providential working must take place and it cannot be stopped. And this is not just an intellectual place of comfort. This should be a, a, a complete whole comfort for level for us. God's providence cannot be stopped. His sovereignty cannot be thwarted. What he has put into play, play will take place. No, it must take place. And as I console myself when I look at the world scene of terrorism and fear and uncertainty and a political cycle like we've never seen in our lives, a country that seems to have lost its corporate mind, I remind myself we're 239-year-old as a child. This world's been around a lot longer. People groups have lasted a lot longer than us Americans, and God's providence is not thwarted. He is sovereign. He never stopped being sovereign. And what he has decreed must take place. And we're getting a fast forward future into what that throne is going to be like. A glimpse of that throne, verse 2. Immediately, I was in the spirit, John writes, and behold, a throne was standing in heaven and one sitting on the throne. And he who was sitting was like jasper stone and a sardius in appearance. And there was a rainbow around the throne like an emerald in appearance. The meaning of in the spirits debated. Some think John was in a trance. Uh, we can't be bulldogmatic on a lot of the language in Revelation. I think he was somehow physically still on Patmos, but he was transported or translated into this place where he saw the vision of heaven. It's not unlike what Paul talks about in 1 Timothy 6 when he talks about going to a third heaven, to a paradise. And we hear him say he heard inexpressible words which a man is not permitted to speak so Paul had a similar experience where he was out of body we might say his body remained but he got to see something and he couldn't talk about it the language there is very cryptic either he was not able to that God wouldn't let him talk about it or he couldn't describe it with human the economy of a human language John gets to see a glimpse into heaven and he's going to give us words to explain it but they can't quite explain it because it's otherworldly. It's heavenly. And we, Before we get all science fiction in our imagination, we want to know what the Bible does say clearly, not expand upon it or extrapolate too far, and to be careful that we study it well and correctly. Well, any description here, I want you to notice, first of all, it's not the way 
we might want things described. He's talking about a throne and particularly the one seated on the throne. Doesn't talk about his regalia, doesn't talk about his face, doesn't talk about his hands, doesn't talk about scepters. He talks about what he sees, and he uses a very similar, a very a simple metaphor. We all know what a metaphor is. We say the world is like an apple, like an apple. A tree is like life. Just a simple metaphor, a simile, a comparison. And he's going to give us several. He begins by talking about jewels. He says it's like rare grandeur gems. These would be both kingly and magisterial, as well as pictures of wealth. He says jasper and sardius to begin with. Jasper was probably a clear-like diamond. Sardius is a dark ruby red stone, more than likely, a ruby red jewel. And more importantly to me, and this is where studying our Bible carefully comes into play, if we go back into the Old Testament, the first time we re read about jasper and sardius have to do with Aaron's breastplate. Aaron, being the older brother of Moses, is set apart to be the priest, the first priest. After him, of course, the order of Levi will come and lots of Levitical. So you have the Aaron, Aaronic priesthood, and the Levitical priesthood. Aaron has to go through an incredible ritual of clothing and washing and bathing and all sorts of things before he can go in and carry out his priestly duties. The most ornate part of that is the breastplate that represents the 12 tribes of Israel. The first stone was Jasper. And it was the tribe of Reuben. The last stone was Sardius, the tribe of Benjamin. So to me, if we're going to look at how biblical theology plays out, we're in a throne room. We're worshiping a heavenly, the heavenly Christ. We're in this other state that John's witnessing. The parallels to me are intriguing, not to be bulldogmatic, that maybe there's an allusion, a reference to the idea of the priest Aaron who goes in to worship now we're privy to see a glance of what that kingdom was like, what that throne room is like with the one who's seated on the throne. Walter Scott writes, The essential glory of God cannot, of course, be communicated. Paul, in 1 Timothy 6, writes, God dwells in unapproachable light, whom no man has seen or can see. We think of Moses wanting to see God's glory, and he can't. So God, if you will, lets passes by and lets him see the, the Shekinah or the Epiphany go by. We have the burning bush, but we also have what we call theophanies, right, or Christophany. That's a pre-incarnate appearance of Jesus. So when the angel comes to talk to Abraham, that's Christ. When the angel wrestles with Joshua, that's Christ. So we have these pictures of Christ in the Old Testament before he's born of Mary, a little baby. So he's always existed. We see Christ in this God-man, but we can't see him in his fatherly state. We can't comprehend it. Then, of course, we have the Holy Spirit we'll talk about in a moment. John is saying, I saw a celestial display, and the best I can describe it is using what I saw with some metaphors for you and me to understand. Now, he moves to the throne and the elders. Around the throne were 24 thrones, and upon those thrones... Verse 4, I saw 24 elders sitting, clothed in white garment and golden crowns on their heads. Um, each of these now is important to talk about briefly. The, the white robe is a picture of, of righteousness, of 
being cleaned, the transfiguration where they were white in appearance, unlike any launderer's soap could clean them. The, we talked about the bride's dress a couple of weeks ago, that she wears white, not out of tradition, but she wears white from Revelation and from Ephesians, that she is presented to the groom without spot or wrinkle or any such blemish. That's the picture of the church. So here we have this white, cleansed, righteous group. We're not told who these 24 elders are on these 24 thrones. And the, the uh, speculation runs the gamut from all sorts of things, angels and human beings, all kinds of things. Uh, again, not to be bulldogmatic, I think there's a hint that it goes back to the priesthood. From Aaron and Levi, there were thousands of priests. And if you grew up in a Catholic tradition, as did I, you might be familiar with the term orders, like there are orders of priests or orders of nuns. The Old Testament talked about orders. There were so many priests that would put them in groups, if you will, and there were 24 orders of priests. So perhaps, again, if we have an ephod, a breastplate, perhaps if the stones are talking about that, perhaps if we have an allusion to that, then maybe we have the representatives of those priests in the Old Testament. Interestingly, they're wearing a golden crown. Now, there's two words in Revelation for crown. The first one is diadem. If you're over 35, you probably know, bring forth the royal and crown him Lord of all. That's a good hymn. That line is unique to the Savior, unique to God the Father, some argue. Only God can have the diadem. The other word that's used for crown in Revelation is Stephanos. If your name is Steve or Stephen, that means a crown. And it means a perishable crown, not unlike the greenery that's wrapped together. You see in Roman imagery, perhaps, in your mind. And that was a disposable crown. That's what the, if you will, quote, the first Olympics. That was the type of perishable crown in the first century people received. This is a Stephanos of gold. So the picture of these 24 elders worshiping around the throne are white righteous proper before the throne you can't worship god if you're not clean and righteous and holy so they're before him around him encircling him and perfectly white righteous and they've got these gold crowns and you know where the story goes with the gold crowns but let's continue verse five out of the throne come flashes of lightning and sounds of peals of thunder and there were seven lamps of fire burning before the throne, which are the seven spirits of God. John's description to me is very similar to what we, read, what we read in Exodus when Moses goes up to give the law to the people. Listen to the same imagery of flashes of lightning, sounds of uh, peals of thunder, and the fear that they experience. Listen to Exodus 19, verse 16 and following. It came about on the third day when it was morning, there was thunder and lightning flashes, and a thick cloud upon the mountain, and a very loud trumpet sound, so that the people in the camp were trembled. And you remember that scene probably in your reading or storytelling, that they were so terrified to hear the voice of God, to see the lightning, to hear the thunder and the ominous cloud. They were so freaked out, that's what NIV says, freaked out that they said, hey, Moses, you talk to God and let us know what he says. We don't want to hear that or see that anymore, which is a good, oh, by the way, incidental reminder. People in the Bible, when they see God or see uh, some evidence of God, they're always terrified. Even John fell on his face like a dead man. 
and without being unkind or disrespectful, even this morning, I guess you do this on Easter News Weekend, we have these people that tell the story about being dead and seeing God and coming back and writing a book. God bless them, everyone. Um, I, I, I ask one simple question. People in Scripture who saw God or angels were terrified. They fell on their face like dead men. And it took Christ or an angel picking them up and saying, do not be afraid. It wasn't about all being loving and a white light. It was terror, unless you're in a right relationship with him. Well, that's all for free. <laughs> Revelation 4, verse 6, and behold, the throne, before the throne, there was something like a sea of glass, like crystal. And in the center and around the throne, the four living creatures, full of eyes in front and behind. First creature was like a lion, and the second creature like a calf. And the third creature had the face like that of a man. And the fourth creature was like a flying eagle. And the four living creatures, each one of them having six wings, are full of eyes around and within. And day and night they do not cease to say, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God the Almighty, who was and who is and who is to come. Again, we don't want to push the text too far, but we want to make some comparisons. The sea of glass may reference back to the, the tabernacle complex, which becomes the temple complex. You remember prior to Solomon building the temple, they had a portable tabernacle in the wilderness, remember? And the centerpiece was the Ark of the Covenant. Remember, if the cloud moved, pack up the tent, and you move. And then they set up again. But by Solomon's time, he builds a permanent home for the Lord. And that's a small temple complex. Herod, if you go to Israel today, because it is God's will, when you, you'll see Herod's temple complex, which is enormous compared to Solomon's temple complex. But the tabernacle and the temple had two features that, were con that continued because of God's instructions. They were basins, or also called seas. And they, they were around the side where the sacrifice was offered. Not to be too uh, detailed or, or uh, dis distasteful on an Easter morning, but if you've ever been a deer hunter or a turkey hunter or hunting any game, when you uh, have to clean or field dress that animal, there's a lot of blood involved. Think of the sacrificial systems as not some pristine bunch of white lambs. Think of bloody lambs, bloody goats, bloody animals, lots of blood. And if you know anything about blood, when you kill something and drain the blood, it takes a lot of water to wash that blood away. A little blood contaminates a whole lot of water. So they had these basins, also called seas. Now in the throne, we have a crystal glass basin, if you will, is the picture. And perhaps we're getting a glimpse of the fact that we don't need a bunch of basins anymore because the sacrifice is done long ago. It's complete. And now we just see this crystalline piece of glass-like water to reflect the purity of the one on the throne. The four living creatures are parallel to Ezekiel's, and those of you who are in BSF or Precept or Bible students will already make the connection, and well, you should. What we have in Revelation is like a lion, like a calf, like a man, and like an eagle. The lion, of course, is an easy one. Christ is depicted as the lion of the tribe of Judah, right? That's an easy one. And we look at even common literature and story today. The lion is what? The king of the jungle. If you saw the lion king, right? Lions are formidable beasts. They have no predator. They have no enemy. 
The only enemy they experience is another young male lion who comes up as in the Lion King to take their place because they are the king of the jungle. That's why they can bask in the sun without any worry or fear. They're amazing animals. They're powerful. Think about it. They lay around and do nothing all day. What a great life. Except eat meat. This is a man's paradise, man. A carnivore's paradise. And they're strong, even though they're dormant. Amazing animals. Like a lion. Like the lion of the tribe of Judah. A calf, more than likely, the word oxen would be better. Old Testament, the oxen were the strong animal. And if you were a, a farmer, uh, the, what, the work you could do with an oxen versus by yourself, think of the Old West and animals that pulled plows. You could do a lot more work with an animal than you can do by yourself. So the oxen wasn't thought of as livestock like we think today, primarily for food. They were animals that served us, that served antiquity. Where there is no oxen, the mangers clean, the proverb says. You have the strength of the oxen, you can accomplish a lot. And so probably the, the picture here is Christ came as the servant, Mark 10, 45. He did not come to be served, but to serve and give his life a ransom for many. Thirdly, we have like a man. Of course, this is an easy one. Jesus is the God-man. He's eternally existed as the God-man. He was born of a virgin. He grows and becomes the God, as an infant, he's the God-man. He grows to become 30-some years of age. He's crucified. He's resurrected. He's still the God-man, fully incarnate, fully God, fully man, and like an eagle. Probably alludes to power, to prowess. Again, another animal that has no predator, another animal that has no enemy, as it were. Nobody picks on an eagle. They're strong. They have keen eyesight. They're at the height, we might say, of of what they can do and see and travel. And so we have these metaphors. He's like a lion. He's like a calf or an ox. He's like a man. He's like a, an eagle. Now, Paige Patterson thinks that these are angels that are being described. I don't particularly agree, but listen to what he says about these beings. If portions of their descriptions defy explanations, he writes, their purpose in the throne room vision is very clear. Day and night, they never stop saying, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was and is and who is to come. The purpose of the cherubim, another word for angels, is to praise God continually, and as the Greek text suggests, without rest. The point of having no pause or rest, simply put, is that the perpetual job of these winged cherubim is to worship. The chant is to a thrice holy God. And we can think of Isaiah, holy, holy, holy. And I, I push it to say this is Trinitarian. Holy is the Father. Holy is the Son. Holy is the Spirit. The thrice holy God. Not just three times for good measure. Holy is the Father. Holy is the Spirit. Holy is the Son. He is eternality. He has come to exist forever. He always was. He always is, and he is to come. Well, the living creatures and elders worship him, verses 9 to 11. And when the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to him who sits on the throne, to him who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders will fall down before him who sits on the throne and will worship him who lives forever and ever and will cast their crowns before the throne, saying, Worthy are you, our Lord and our God, to receive glory and honor and power. For you created all things, and because of your will, they existed and were created. 
The living creatures give glory, doxa. We know the word doxology. Doxological prayers or doxological hymns are typically explained as hymns that are vertical. They're worshiping God. They're not about requests or laments or petitions. It's a purely worshiping song when we sing a doxology. Praise God. It's vertical. We give him honor. We give him thanks. Eucharistia. Whenever we commemorate the Lord's table, I often comment that when Christ broke the bread, the bread wasn't the Eucharist. He broke the bread and gave thanks. The word giving thanks is Eucharistes. So he's breaking the bread, giving God thanks for the bread. When he's alluding to his own body, it's going to be broken. And here the elders are giving glory, giving honor, and giving thanks for him who sits on the throne. And the elders will fall down, and they'll throw their crowns. Of course, the band taking their name after this, casting crowns, these are gold. Wouldn't be much good to throw a disposable wreath at the foot of the eternal God. And so God gives them a golden crown, clothed in righteousness, clothed in perfection. They're sinless worshipers at this point. Whoever they are, angels or elders or representatives, we don't know. But they've got a golden crown. And the only thing you do with something like that is you throw it back to the one who gave it to you because you have no right or possession or ownership over it because he was the one that granted it. Gladly, these living ones give gladly from their heart, let's say. They're ready to do it without hesitation or equivocation. So how does this tie in to our worship of a risen Savior? How do we worship that which is hard to comprehend? What grabs your affection, what grabs your heart, what grabs your pocketbook, what grabs your sweat equity, and you're ready to give it away to something? Um, I'm almost embarrassed to tell you this little anecdote, but a few weeks ago, maybe 10, 12 days ago, I was searching for something on the internet, let's just call it A, and I ended up like in triple H. You ever do that? Um, and within no time, I, I, I wasted, I don't want to tell you how much time I wasted, but I wasted a lot of time, and I started, of all things, watching uh, old, like 1950s and 60s uh, clips of Oscar recipients. Now, how I got from A to Triple H is a stream of consciousness I can't explain, but nevertheless, here I am. So I'm watching these old clips of Richard Burton, Catherine Hepburn, John Wayne, Cary Grant, uh, Alec Guinness. And I, 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 can't even, I can't confess how much time I did doing this. I mean, I watched these for a long time, and I got sucked into it. And I noticed some trends. Uh, number one... They were humble when they received their award. Number two, they acknowledged all the other people that were nominated in that category. Number three, they thanked the committee profusely. Number four, they stayed on time. And it struck me, not that it's right or wrong or bad or worse, not that that was a perfect time. We know it wasn't. But it struck me by comparison today, you couldn't pay me, I'm sorry, to watch the Oscars today. You couldn't pay me to watch the Grammy. I know I might hurt some of your feelings. I'm sorry, forgive me, it's Easter. Um, you couldn't pay me to watch that ingratiating system. And it just struck me, the difference. Not that it was perfect. So from Triple H, I went to Quadruple Z on the Internet. <laughs> and I started asking myself, who watches this stuff? Why do they watch it? You know what the most single-viewed television program so far in television broadcast history was? It was the end of a series. Do you know what it was? MASH. 
You must be about 60 if you know the answer to that. Hundred twenty-five million viewers watched the last episode. So someone, all, what's Mash? What's Mash? We're a different world. Um, you can probably binge watch it. I don't know. It'll take you twelve years. But anyway, um, hundred twenty-five million viewers. And then I started searching. Well, what's more recent? Um, some of the big ones, obviously Grammys. The first walk on the moon. Diana and Charles's wedding. Diana's funeral. Uh, of course, a lot of FIFA World Cups. Opening and closing Olympics, some Super Bowls thrown in there. American Idol at 35 million at their all-time high. Um, we have an interesting thing right now with internet, technology, direct TV, dish TV, Comcast cable. Uh, broadcast television and radio are algorithms. We don't know exactly who or how long. But if you have a cable service or something, a satellite in your car, or you use direct or Netflix, we know exactly how long you watch, what your bounce rate is, what you go back to, what ads you looked at on the way to that thing. We know everything about you. So the data we have now on viewership is, is chilling, but the marketers love it because they can see exactly what you want to watch and how you want to watch it, and they can tailor it to get you more indoctrinated. So now I'm in like quintuple Z looking at things on the Internet because they know what I want to watch. And as I'm buried in all this, I'm asking myself the question, what grabbed my attention? What grabbed my affection? What grabbed my heart that pulled me into that? And what grabs people's hearts that makes 35 million people watch American Idol? That makes 125 million people watch the end of a series? That makes record-breaking 10 million viewers watch a current political candidate because we've never seen anything quite like it. Presumably, something in man and woman draws us, I'm asking the question, to worship? I know people, no names, who dress up to watch the Oscars. Knock yourself out, baby. What is it about these things that compels us? The closing scene of Revelation directs our attention to 24 elders who are dressed in white, purified and sinless, who are throwing gold crowns at the throne, at the foot of the throne of the one who sits on the throne. How do we reinstill that affection? I don't know the answer to it, but I want to ask you the question. All creation was designed to worship God. All creation will worship God. Paul the Apostle writes, if the dead are not raised, yet even Christ has not been raised. If Christ is not raised, your faith is worthless. He also writes that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess on heaven and earth that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Not just some, not just the elect, not just the Jew, not just the saved Gentiles, every tongue, every knee will bow. What, what does it take for you and me to understand the resurrection event is the most pivotal event in human history? Even bigger than the last episode of MASH. I asked the band to come out and lead us again, and as, as they do, I want you to ask and answer the question, how do I live differently now? How do I worship Christ differently because he is, in fact, raised from the dead? The reason you're here, well, I hope the reason you're here, the reason I'm here, 
is because my whole foundation of faith is on this one function, that Christ came back from the dead, that he lived, that he died, that he was buried to confirm his death. Three days later, he was raised from the dead, and he offers a free gift of salvation to any and all who put their trust in Christ and Christ alone. Now, how do we live as a result of that, keeping him on the throne? God bless you. Have a great week.